0: A foundational belief that we confess is the verbal, plenary inspiration of the Scripture. That is, that not only is the message of the Scripture inspired by God, but the very words that are used uh, in that message are inspired. Therefore, in order to rightly understand the Word of God, attention has to be given to individual words and their meaning. With that in mind, I encourage you to open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5 as we continue our consideration in this great epistle of the Apostle Paul. I'll read in our hearing again today, beginning with verse 15. I'll read down through verse number 21 of Ephesians 5. Let us hear God's Word. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. I do humbly pray that the Lord will bless His Word and open it to us and may His people say, Our primary focus today is on verse number 18 of the verses that I have read. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Now, you'll recall that in chapter 4, verse 1, Paul begins with a general exhortation to the congregation, to the church at Ephesus, by exhorting them to walk worthy. Those two words are words well known by our trail life because that is our boys because that is their motto. And they love to shout that out, to walk worthy. In chapter 4, verses 17-17, through chapter 6, verse 20, the Apostle will enumerate several exhortations pertaining to walking worthy. And so these verses are related to that general exhortation of walking worthy. In chapter 4, verse 17, he will exhort that we are not to behave as other Gentiles. In chapter 5, verse 1, he will exhort that we are to be imitators of God. And then in uh, verses 15-21 through 21 of Ephesians 5, that that we have read again today in our hearing, we have a summary really of these exhortations that precede this. Now, in verse 15, we have the last use of the, of the verb walk. And this is something that He has repeated time and again as you go through uh, chapter 4 and into chapter, uh, through chapter 5. So this is the last use of that particular verb, walk, uh, peripato. It means to live, to behave, that which a person is given to. And this is also the last use of the formula that Paul has been using uh, throughout chapter 4. Don't do this, but do this. Now, you'll notice the transitions here. We don't have any more of the word walk. We don't have any more of that formula after these verses. So this is a transitional uh, passage of Scripture. It's a summary passage of Scripture. So, one must be conformed to God's own character if one is to walk worthy. You're to be like God. And what does that mean? Well, chapter 5, verse 2, it means to walk in love. It means to be kind, caring, forgiving. It also means to walk as children of light. Chapter 5, verse 8. That is to uh, dealing with moral integrity, holiness, purity. If one is to be like God, he must be in the light. He must be in that moral purity. And it also means that one is to walk in wisdom. Chapter 5, verse 15. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise and this wisdom we understood as we focused on it last week uh, it deals with understanding time that time is a precious commodity that we are to make full use of that's what he exhorts us to do in verse 16 making the best use of the time it also understand it is also walking in wisdom is understanding the times and we looked at that as well because, he says in the end of verse 16, the days are evil. So it's understanding the general principle of time, applying our hearts unto wisdom, and it's understanding the times. And it's also understanding the will of God, which we are exhorted to in verse 17, to not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. So this is walking in wisdom. Making use of time, understanding the times, and also understanding the will of God. Now, to be conformed to the likeness of God and to walk in a worthy manner reflective of God's own character, one must indeed be filled with, in, or by the Holy Spirit. Chapter 5, verse 18. John MacArthur writes, the life of God in the soul is the only thing that can produce that kind of living. Only the life of God in your soul will render you to walk worthy. Regeneration Holiness, progressive sanctification, unity, which is a big theme of chapter 4, wisdom. These things are not the result of trying really hard or turning over another leaf in my life. I'm just going to try harder. It's not, these things are not a result of that. But they are rather a result of the Spirit. Galatians 3, verse 3, we read Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? It is the Spirit that gives life. Now the Spirit has given life. Am I to continue on and walk worthy by the strength of my flesh? By my wisdom? No. Galatians 5.16 Walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Verse 25 If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. So, this walking worthy is not just something I bootstrap myself to, but it is a result of God within me. Believer. Now, with that in mind, I want us to consider what we'll call the grammatical historical uh, considerations of verse 18 of Ephesians 5. And that grammatical historical is a way, it's a a hermeneutic, it's a way of of looking at scripture, it's a way of interpreting the scripture. And today, what I want to focus on is the grammatical historical uh, focus of verse number 18. And that is, and do not get drunk. With wine, for that is debauchery that be filled with the Spirit. So, why in the middle of a discussion on wisdom does Paul exhort, do not get drunk with wine? question arises is he contrasting Christianity, the life of the Christian walking worthy, to paganism <laughs> and the way that pagans worship. S.M. Ball writes, some scholars see a link with a pagan background of cultic inebriation in drunken Dionysian rites as a way to cause Dionysus. And Dionysus was the, the Greek god of fertility. Later on, became the known chiefly as the god of of wine and pleasure, and so Paul is writing: Is this is this comparing or is this contrasting being filled with the Spirit to this drunken Dionysian rites uh, to cause Dionysius, the god, to enter and fill the worshipper's body? Why does Paul bring up? Don't be drunk. I mean, he's talking about wisdom. William Hendrickson writes: Such foolishness, often associated. Uh, with uh, the dionistic types of worship, he says, orgies, is by the apostle contrasted with the serene ecstasy and sweet fellowship with Christ which he himself was experiencing in the Spirit when he wrote the letter to the Ephesians. And one other quote. Going back to MacArthur, he writes, drunkenness was a method used in pagan religions to induce a supposed communion with the deities. And I mean when they got drunk, they really got drunk. They would even vomit so they could drink more. And we've even discovered archaeologically that there are places where they had pits for just that purpose. And this would be pits and their places of worship to these gods where they would drink and they would drink to the point of a stupor and then they would make themselves throw up so they can drink more. Is that why Paul brings this up? Is he is he making a, a, a contrast between be filled with the Spirit and a paganistic form of worship? Well, I would say that Ephesians 5.18 is not a temperance verse. What I mean by that, it's not a verse that we would go to, or I, I don't think I would, that I would go to uh, in speaking about um, abuse or the prohibition, if you please, of alcohol or any form of drugs. John Gill writes that drinking wine for necessary use is not prohibited. He's talking about 518. Nor for honest delight and lawful pleasure, but excessive drinking of it. It is a custom or habit of excessive drinking for not a single act, but a series of actions, a course of living in this sin denominates a man a drunkard. That's what we would say we would classify a person as a drunkard. It's not that they had a drink, but that they are constantly living in this state. So, I don't see this as as a temperance verse at all. I think that uh, and also, um, the, the focus of 5.18 then is not, it's not on drinking wine. Yes, abuse of any substance that impairs a person, be it wine or marijuana or uh, some illegal drug or some legal uh, prescription, abuse of that, any of that, uh, is sin. And yes, drunkenness seldom sells alone. It's a sin that has other sins attached to it. And here Paul says, which leads to debauchery. And that word is, means a behavior which shows a lack of concern or thought for the consequences of an action. Senseless, reckless deeds. A disorderly life, which is totally opposite than the life being described to us in verses 15 and 17 of being careful how careful you walk, to look carefully at how careful you walk. And this is in direct contrast to that. So, the focus of 5.18, I think, is theological. And it is to be understood and to be interpreted in a metaphorical sense. What do you mean by that? Well, Paul has already said, do not live like other Gentiles. That is a futile... Foolish, sensual, selfish life, but rather live a life walk worthy by the Spirit, which manifests itself in wise living, verses 15 through 17 of chapter 5, and also grateful, grateful and edifying worship that he will bring in, chapter 5, verses 19 through 20, where he says, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. So I, I think the focus here is theological. Now, S.M. also notes that Ephesians 5.18, the, the, um, the exhortation of do not get drunk with wine, that, that part of, of the verse, is a direct quote that Paul is directly quoting from the Septuagint. And from the Septuagint, he is directly quoting Proverbs 23.31. And we also note that there is a significant difference between the Septuagint's rendering of that proverb than the English or Hebrew rendering. And Paul here is quoting directly from the Septuagint. The English says, do not look at wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup and goes down smoothly. But in the Septuagint, we read, do not be drunk on wine. Paul's directly quoting it. And the passage goes on in the Septuagint and says, but keep company with righteous men and keep their company in your travels. For if you let your eyes settle in your bowls and in your cup, you will thereafter walk around more naked than a staff. But Paul is quoting directly from the Septuagint. Do not be drunk. I know I have a lot of quotes today, but this type of message that I'm engaged in I think lends itself more to that. Peter O'Brien, another very good biblical scholar, writes, the point is often missed in the English translations that verses 18-21, through I'm talking of Ephesians 5, forms one long sentence with five participles. And those participles are speaking, singing, making melody, giving thanks, submitting, all the ing words that you have in those verses. It's one long sentence with five participles modifying the imperative filled with the Spirit. Although these participles have been understood as imperatives, particularly the last one, submit... It is better to regard them as dependent participles of result which describe the overflow of the outworking of the Spirit's filling believers. Spirit-filled Christians are people whose lives are characterized by singing, thanksgiving, and mutual submission. In other words, verse 19 and 20 is not what you do to be filled. But there are... Describing, they're modifying what it means to be filled. They're an outflow of being filled. So, what is being filled with the Spirit? Well, there's a lot in Ephesians about the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God. In chapter 1, verse 13, the Ephesians were told they were sealed with the Spirit. In verse 17, Uh, we read that they were given the Spirit of Wisdom. In chapter 2, verse 18, we have access, we are told, to the Father through the Spirit. In chapter 2, verse 22, we read that we are God's dwelling place by the Holy Spirit. In chapter 3, verse 4, we read of the mystery of, of the Gospel that is revealed by the Spirit. In chapter 3, verse 16, we read that the Ephesian believers were strengthened by the Spirit. In chapter 4, verse 3, we're told to maintain the unity of the Spirit. In chapter 4, verse 4, we're told that there is but one Holy Spirit. In chapter 4, verse 30, we're told that we are not to grieve the Holy Spirit. In chapter 5, verse 18, we are filled with the Spirit. In chapter 6, verse 17, we're told to take up the sword of the Spirit. And in chapter 6, verse 18, we're told to pray in the Spirit. Paul says a lot in the book of Ephesians about the Holy Spirit. However, because there is confusion and abuse concerning particularly the subject of being filled with the Spirit, I think we should give some consideration to what being filled with the Spirit is not. Because we hear so much in a confusing way of what it is. I think we need to kind of push back against some of that. Being filled with the Spirit is not some novel or new experience for some Christians. Paul does not exhort, have yourself an experience. That's not the exhortation. Again, I'm quoting from MacArthur and then from Jeff Thomas. Some people think it means you get some divine zap Some people think that this is what happens when you speak in tongues. And there are people who say, well, have you been filled with the Spirit? If you have some kind of a static experience, you've got it. If you have it, you don't. It's not a zap. It's not an experience. It's not some novel concept that Paul is speaking of here. And then Thomas writes, the Ephesians are not being asked to drink a new wine which they never drank before. This isn't something new that Paul is addressing. You remember back in Ephesians 1, verses 13 and 14, we were told, you were sealed, you were, past tense, sealed by the promised Holy Spirit who is, present tense, who is the guarantee of our inheritance Future tense until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So the spirit we are sealed by its past, its work is past, his work is present, his work is future, Paul says to the Ephesians. Now who is the you? You were sealed. Who is you? And we can even pull that in over here to five eighteen of you being filled. But who's the you? It's believers. The Holy Spirit was promised by the prophets. Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 36, that this is the new covenant that I will put My Spirit in you. It was promised by the prophets and it was promised by Christ to believers. He was, not it was. The Holy Spirit is God's seal, He writes in Ephesians. That is, He lives within believers and identifies them as believers, as children of God. That's what it means when He says He's a seal. The Holy Spirit is God's guarantee. The presence of the Spirit in the believer is not only a promise of our final glorification, our final inheritance, but even now, is a pledge and down payment. He Himself is the pledge and down payment of our glorious inheritance. And then thirdly, the Holy Spirit is God's guarantee. Um, We have a foretaste of glory even now. Now, Paul does not say that some believers in Ephesians 5.18, that some believers are to be filled with the Spirit. Why? In Romans chapter 8, verse 9, we read, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. If the Spirit is not in you, then you're not Christ. Plain and simple. Who then is sealed with the Spirit. Who then is filled with the Spirit? God's children. Plain and simple. Not some, but all. Another quote. and I think Cornelius Venema does a good job of sort of bringing this to bear here. He writes, the Holy Spirit, peculiar work in the salvation of the elect, reminds us that it is not enough to speak of God's eternal purpose of election god's eternal purpose saves no one of course we can say that no one's saved without it but his point is that purpose alone does not save anyone it must still be put into effect he goes on to say that nor is it sufficient to describe the redemptive accomplishments of christ the mediator The actual salvation of the elect sinners only occurs by the means and ministry of the Holy Spirit who proceeds from the Father and the Son. Yes, God purpose. Yes, historically Christ died on the cross. And also, yes, as you live, you're granted the gift of faith through regeneration, the Spirit giving you life and indwelling you. Faith in Jesus Christ. Paul's talking to all believers. Now I want to consider with you the verb "filled" (plereo). This is where I said every word we believe in plenary. So now we're going to get in more dig down a little bit more into the every word of this what Paul is writing. In Kittel's Theologi- theological dictionary, <clears throat> the word "filled" is defined as such fullness that they stamp the whole life in conduct and claim the whole being. And again, this is, this is what has been repeatedly brought to our minds in Ephesians 4 and 5 and walking worthy. That is that the one who is filled with the Spirit is living under the influence of the Holy Spirit. Now the verb filled is in the present tense. What does that mean? Why is that important? Well, that means that this field is an ongoing process or state of being. It's not a single, definitive, or repeated experience that Paul's talking about. That's that's not what's being said here. It is in the present tense. It is a state of being. For example, in First Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 7, we are exhorted, you are exhorted, Thessalonians were exhorted, believers are exhorted. Pray without ceasing. What does that mean? Does that mean that you pray continually and repeatedly? Well, yes, we pray continually and repeatedly, but is that what first Thessalonians five seven is exhorting? Pray without ceasing. Or is the exhortation there that we maintain that we live with a prayerful attitude? Pray without ceasing. Live in that attitude and maintain in your life at all times a prayerful attitude. It's not a one time definitive action, it's not a repeated action, but it's an attitude. Be filled with the Spirit is in the present tense. It's not repeated. It's not a single act. It's a present, ongoing nature that's being described. The verb filled is in the passive voice. What does that mean? Well, it means God does the filling. Not you. You don't do certain things, have a mantra, engage in some sort of ecstatic activity in order to be filled with the Spirit. It's not something you do to yourself, it's something God does. and He does it to all believers. All are filled with the Spirit. Believers are responsible to live an obedient and circumspect life, yes. But we do not fill ourselves with the Holy Spirit. The verb filled is in the second person plural. Well, what in the world is that? uh, So what? (laughs) What does that mean? Well, the emphasis here is not on an individual experience. It's corporate. Paul isn't addressing the individual believer per se. He's addressing the church at Ephesus. That's what it means. And a lot of times this verse is taken as, this is an individual experience that I must obtain to, to reach super Christian status. And Paul hasn't said anything like that. He's he's addressing this to the congregation. Those that make up the church at Ephesus. And he's not addressing just certain individuals in that congregation, but he's addressing the entire congregation. So... Whether the person was the most holy, most mature member in the congregation, or whether they were a church leader, an elder, or a deacon, or had some other profile in the church, or whether they were a founding member of the church, whether they were an aged saint of Christ, whether or not they were a new convert, a milk drinker, it mattered not. Paul is addressing the entire congregation. And so no believer, you nor me, can switch off at this point and go, well, I've got it. Or I can never get it. Because Paul is addressing the entire congregation. I would also say that the exhortation be filled with the Spirit does not assume they are not. Look back in Ephesians chapter 4 for a moment, verse 17 and 18. Now, this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. Well, does that mean they're walking in the as other Gentiles in the futility of their minds? No. Why would you say that? Well, look at the next verse. They, who is they? The the Gentiles are told not to walk like. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Now that sounds a whole lot like people he describes in Ephesians 2 to me. What did he describe in Ephesians 2? And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. And he goes on to say, at one time, you, you had your lifestyle there. This is where you were until you get to that wonderful, holy conjunction in verse 4, but, but God has saved you. He has done this in your life. And so when I, when I say that this exhortation does not assume the absence of being filled, that's not, that's not the way I read this. In chapter 3, verse 17, Paul prays that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Well, is Christ not dwelling in the hearts of believers by faith? That's what identifies them as believers. So that's not an exhortation of absence, but that's that's not the emphasis here. Romans 8 9, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, If in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. So, what's Paul praying for when he says or exhorting to these people that they don't walk as other Gentiles or that Christ may dwell in your heart? What's he praying for? Again, another quote, this time from Stock. Some are puzzled by this first petition, and that be that Christ may dwell in your hearts in the prayer in Ephesians 3. Some are puzzled by this first petition when they remember that Paul is praying for Christians. Surely they say, Christ dwells by His Spirit within every believer. So how can Paul ask that Christ may dwell in their hearts? Is Christ not already within them? Is the Holy Spirit not already within you? (laughs) To these questions we begin by replying that indeed every Christian is indwelt by Christ and is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Nevertheless, as Charles Hodges rightly comments, the indwelling of Christ is a thing of degrees. So also is the inward strengthening of the Holy Spirit. What Paul asks for his readers is that they may be fortified, braced, invigorated, that they may know the strength of the Spirit's inner reinforcement and may lay hold ever more firmly by faith of this divine strength, this divine indwelling. And that's a good prayer. In other words, sometimes people as believers, we can get awfully down in the mouth, can we not? This is more than I can take, Lord. Lord, I am so lonely. This is so hard. I don't know how much more I can stand. Do we need something different from God? Or simply an awareness of who we are in Christ and who Christ is in us? And I would say the latter. I don't need a novel experience. I simply need to know the riches of Christ that are mine now. Be filled with the Spirit. Positive. What, what does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? Well, I told Gil I would say it this way, then I said, no, I won't, so I'll go ahead and say it this way. <laughs> In all of the poly, of all of the Pauline corpus, this is the only, only reference to uh, be filled. It's the only time Paul ever says it. In all the writings of Paul. In all of Paul's writings, this is the only place... That Paul ever writes, be filled with the Spirit. Now, the principle of filling is his writings are shot through with that. But this is the only place we find this specific verbiage and its usage. Now, in Philippians 1, show you some of the being shot through. Philippians 1:11. Filled, we are filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Colossians 1.9 Asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will. Whose will? Spirit's will? The Lord's will. Christ's will. In all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Colossians 2, 9 and 10. For in Him the whole fullness of Deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in Him. In Christ. Who is the head of all rule and authority. Romans 15, 13 through 14. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope I, may, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. Yes, Paul writes a lot about filling. But this is the only time he talks about being filled by the Spirit. Now, I want to notice with you, remember, plenary inspiration, I want to notice with you the preposition in. Um... Translated with, but be filled with the Spirit, and it is preposition, and it's the word in eat. epsilon nu for you Greek people. It's a that that's the way the word is spelled. It can mean in or by. Or with. Now, based on the text and the context that we're considering here, a lot of scholars lean toward in, not with, as, as we have it rendered. Rather than being filled with the Spirit, it's being filled in the Spirit. Now, you recall that we've already been told in Ephesians, in Ephesians 1.23, the church is filled with Christ. In Ephesians 3.19, that we're filled with all the fullness of God. In Ephesians 4.10, that Christ has ascended so that He might fill all things. In Ephesians 4.13, our destiny is is the stature of the fullness of Christ in Colossians, a companion epistle with Ephesians, Colossians two ten? We have been filled with Christ. So, being filled with the Spirit, I understand, is being filled with Christ in His fullness, being filled with the Lord. The church, so that the church might rightly represent Christ. Now, I want to, if I can, conclude this today and maybe wrap it up a little bit. But I, I am acutely aware at this point, and even as I was preparing this, I was very acutely aware that there's a lot that pertains to this verse I've not mentioned, such as the ecclesiastical component. In Ephesians chapter two, verses nineteen through twenty-two, the church is God's. New Covenant community. And it's compared to the temple of God. And we read as our call to worship this morning how God filled the temple. The New Covenant community, the church, is filled with the fullness of Christ. There are numerous Old Testament references to God filling the temple. Here we have it in its New Testament counterpart, There is also an eschatological element, such as in Ephesians 1.10, that God uniting all things in Christ in the fullness of time. The church, Emmanuel Baptist Church, is God's spiritual community. It is the body of Christ. It is the peculiar place where Christ dwells by His Spirit. And we are to manifest his presence by unity and um, imitating God, be imitators of God by love and purity and wisdom. And the church is God's spiritual community, his kingdom. It is indeed the special place. Of the presence and blessings of Jesus Christ. It is what God has called to manifest his wisdom to those principalities, to those powers that we read about in Ephesians 4. And the church is to seek to not grieve the Holy Spirit or hinder his operation in any sort of way, but rather to seek to be filled with the fullness of. God now I want to give a quote in closing today it's a rather lengthy one this goes back years ago it's from um, Arturia Azurdia. please give ear to, to this quote the group was singing earnestly the drums were pounding the guitarists were strumming away and the audience was tapping their feet but the spirit was not there They sang songs for an hour, building up to a great crescendo and sitting down in an aura of well-being, but the Spirit was not there. The preacher gave his message, told his stories, made them laugh, and made them cry, but the Spirit was not there. He began his appeal and worked them uh, over. Some needed to come to the front to be saved, others to rededicate their lives. Others for inner healing. Others to talk to counselors about their problem. A crowd gathered. A man said to himself, I want to be happy like these people. And he went forward. But the Spirit was not there. After the service was over, people talked to one another about their activities and plans and nobody realized that again the Spirit was not in their midst. Down the road in another church, the pastor announced the hymns top lady and Watts and a metrical psalm and the congregation sang but the spirit was not there. The Bible was read but the spirit was not there. The preacher prayed for the congregation and the community. He thanked God for the gospel but the spirit was not there. Afterwards the congregation quietly went home as aware as the minister had been that things were not as they should be nor as they could be in the church of the living God. When the blessing of God is removed from a gospel church which is worshiping in the old ways, the results are immediate and pathetic. If the Spirit of God is not inhabiting the praise of the people and the proclamation of the preacher, there is nothing left but bare walls. And sometimes in... Church, we attempt to cover that by other things, whether it be colors or tapestries or whatever it may be. Because I'll read this on if the Spirit of God is not inhabiting the praise of the people and proclamation of the preacher. There is nothing left but bare walls. However, when the Spirit is driven out of a church which has hand clapping, loads of choruses, a band, racy sermons, laughter, altar calls, it will be about a millennium or two before anyone notices He is gone. Because even when He is not there, they act as if He were. The atmosphere feels religious. Religious. We can create religious activity, religious atmosphere. One day the preacher fell before God and cried, Lord, I cannot go on without your blessing. David said of you, He restoreth my soul. My soul stands in need of restoration. I seem to do everything like a religious robot without even thinking of you or invoking your aid. And the Spirit began to move. The preacher searched the Bible asking, what are the marks of the Spirit's presence? He learned that defiant sin in his own life or blatant sin tolerated in the congregation quenches the Spirit. If he if he misrepresented God and his way of salvation, or if he fellowshiped with the ungodly, he found that he would grieve God the Spirit. He discovered that if he boldly preached on sin, righteousness, and judgment, and the Spirit Himself, that the Spirit Himself came in his preaching and testified of these sober realities. Most important of all if he glorified the Lord Jesus Christ and spoke much of Him as God the Son and the Savior of all who trust in Him, then the work which the Spirit most delightfully assisted and blessed blessed was apparent. The great lesson he learned as if for the first time was that the Spirit is given to those who obey God. He sought painfully to change his ways, discipline his life, be more resolute in studying the Word of God, spending longer in the presence of the Savior, avoiding those patterns of life that left him morose uh, before the television to the neglect of his family. He went out after people who had been long on the fringes of the church and talked to them about their need of Christ. He gave more time to prepare in his sermons thinking of the people he was preaching to and the God in whose presence he stood when he spoke the Word. Is that something we give attention to? The God in whose presence we gather. He continually acknowledged his own need of the Spirit. Without You, I can do nothing. On Sunday, he stood before his congregation and prayed, Lord, We fear going through this service, hearing the voice of men, our own singing of hymns, and the preacher speaking the word. We dread the thought that we will leave this building in an hour or so and not have known the fellowship and secret sovereign testimony of your Spirit to our hearts. We confess our sins to you. We cry out in our helplessness and in our need of you. Come and have mercy upon us. We can only erect an altar. It is Your prerogative to send the fire. Then the forgiving spirit long grieved, modestly returned, and breathed upon them. And then these words from Revelation 3.20, which most often are ripped out of context, and they're said as if you're speaking to an individual believer, but really the words are spoken to the church, to us if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. Revelation chapter 3. Verse 20. What we desire, what we want, is to know the power of Christ that already lives within us. And we do, I think, we do that more and more by exalting Christ praising Christ, considering His worthiness and His glory. Let's pray together. Father, there are many things that we as a church may do and engage in. Good things, noble things, right things. Prosperous and proper things. But we also realize, Lord, that as a church we can go through the motions of being religious and even feel religious. And not be living within the grace and the strength and the power and the knowledge that You have given to Your church. Lord, we would be more mature. We would be more holy. We would be more loving. We would be more conformed to the image of Christ. Help us, Lord, never to look to ourselves, our own strength, our own abilities, our own gifts, our own ministries, as it were. Even as I read that we may build the altar, but You must send the fire. We can engage and do a lot of things, Lord, but what we would not ever forget, what we would not ever cease to desire, is to know more and more of your presence in our midst. So, yes, Lord, we desire to be filled with the Holy Spirit. We are. We desire to know that, the power of that, the reality of that. So come, Lord. Bless the hearts and minds of your people. Bless Emmanuel Baptist Church. May we walk worthy of the vocation to which we have been called. May we do that individually and especially may we do that corporately. We ask these things with forgiveness of our sins. In the blessed name of Jesus Christ, amen.